Hey, welcome to the 135th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Josh Hansbro. I'm Warren Kaplan. I'm Matt Enlow. Now, this is how Matt would be like, and I'm Matt like, come on, Matt. I'm Liz Manischel. Liz Manischel is here, sitting in for Matt Enlow. Today on the podcast, we have Emily Best. She's the founder and CEO of Seed and Spark, which is a crowdfunding platform that's specific for creative people, creators. They not only help you fund your projects, they that like when you set up your project, they will literally give you feedback on your funding video, and they will help you optimize your message and teach you how to pitch and they also have a streaming service and they are basically a great place to get your project made they're all about uh data transparency and artist control and looking beyond the coastal creators of la and new york so that's pretty cool yeah we talked to emily about the philosophy behind seed and spark and what she thinks makes a good pitch video and we just uh debate This thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately is whether filmmakers need to be good at connecting with their audience online or not. Yeah, I feel like at certain points of the conversation, I like just turned into listening mode and forgot that I was on a podcast because actually Emily and I talk a lot about the same things, but she does it like 10 times better than I do. We're now in like Emily Best school all of a sudden. How do I take this monologue and transfer it to another speaking engagement and steal it from her? Yeah, well, for what it's worth, you have been on our podcast a couple times before and people have multiple times talked to me about how what you said was helpful to them, especially people that had made features and are trying to figure out the next spot. So before we get into our interview with Emily, I'm assuming a lot of our listeners will know who you are because you've been on the podcast. Actually, do you mind if I promote this fellowship to your listeners that is available right now? No. I don't know if anyone knows what I do, but I manage a fellowship at Sundance called the Creative Distribution Fellowship. And applications are open and live. We're accepting applications right now uh, for year three of the fellowship. And you get $33,000 in uh, a non-recoupable grant for P&A for your feature. And we're picking three films. And um, we are looking for filmmakers who want to self-distribute and want to publish the data about self-distribution. But we... I think your listeners would be most familiar with Thunder Road. Oh, yeah. Jim Cummings. Man. Yes. It's yeah, been I, on the podcast. Right. So um, that's one of our fellowship films from year two oh, is cool. their feature. Yeah. That's awesome. So please, um, if you want to know about the fellowship, you can email creative distribution at Sundance.org or just me, Liz Manichelle, gmail.com. Cool. And also, if you just want to get your movie into Sundance, just email Liz. That's She'll such a good sure idea. <laughs> So you just finished your second movie? Yes, we just um, did the ADR for my second feature called Speed of Life. It's essentially a film inspired by the death of David Bowie. In my film, David Bowie dies and his death creates a wormhole in a couple's apartment. And so it's a weird time travel sci-fi dramedy starring Anne Dowd from Handmaid's Tale. Ooh, she's and so amazing. She's amazing. Alison Tolman from Fargo season one. Oh, she's amazing. Um, also. <laughs> Bella Lavelle from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Ray Santiago from Ash vs. Evil Dead and Meet the Fockers and Who Lose the Body and Jeff Perry from Scandal. And of course, I always have to mention my partner, Sean, who has like a real speaking role in this film and gets a love scene. And Doubt is a Hero. I think one of her best performances is in this movie called Wildlike. That was in the festival world right when Bread and Butter was. And there's a scene with her in a helicopter with the lead character. And I was like, oh my God, who is this woman? Um, and then I went after her like mad and we, we got her. And how'd you get her? I wrote a letter. I mean, like I've talked about this before, like I just write a letter to the agent and 
It was a little bit easier this time because I'd already made one feature. Uh, no one asked me if we were fully funded. No, I mean, we were, but no one asked me these questions. And um, basically, it was a lead role for her. And I think that was something different to offer versus these really powerful character, you know, right. supporting Character characters she gets characters. to play. Is it about the same budget as your first film? It's like the exact same budget. Oh, well. So, I mean, I probably shouldn't say, but if anyone has ever heard me talk about my last budget, they'll know it's the same budget. Wait, but aren't you, don't you stand for data you transparency? You would think I would. That's the thing. So I've learned that you, you should be transparent as long as you know what your plan is. I haven't decided whether I want to work with a distributor or not for this one. If I were to self-distribute, I would talk very openly about my budget, but because I know that there's um, discriminatory practices that distributors may enact towards filmmakers and low budgets, um, I'm just not sharing the specific number until I know exactly what my distribution plan is. It's shocking to hear I that know. from you. It's cagey, right? It sounds cagey. No, I mean, can you tell us the what kind of SAG? Well, it's SAG ultra low. It's okay. definitely under 250. I think uh, if you don't want to ask someone what the budget of their film is and you just ask what kind of, what level yeah. of SAG it was, you basically get a lot of info. And knowing that SAG ultra low budget and you had Anne Dowd in the film is like pretty impressive. Thank you. Well, uh, that's always the plan is micro budget with cast. And um, did you need any permission from the David Bowie people or anything? No. Um, I my One of my producers is an entertainment lawyer. And so she kind of combed the script to see... He's a public figure, and um, we actually got turned down to use one of his songs for the film, which was uh, a major blow, actually, because the whole film is a tribute to him, and we <laughs> can't use a song by David Bowie in it. But we have this fantastic band um, called The Modern Electric. They have a song called David Bowie, Save Us All, and the chorus is like, David Bowie is my hero, David, David Bowie. Uh, and it's our credit song. It's uh, badass. Opening or closing? Closing. Do you have opening credits? I do. Um, the paperwork's not signed, but it's this fabulous KCR, KCRW bands that we really like. Oh, cool. Well, I've been up to a lot of really interesting yeah, things. Yeah, I'd rather hear about everything that you're doing. <laughs> doing a lot of random stuff, but I guess the most interesting thing I'm doing is I'm shooting a commercial next week. It's a woman that is uh, known from a TV show that is the spokesperson, and it's kind of a stylized set, and it's supposed to be holiday-themed, but not holiday-specific, and specifically not red and green colors. <laughs> and uh, not blue and silver either? Not blue and silver either, but something that, like, Everyone in my life knows about, except for me, is I guess like jewel tones are Oh, like turquoise festive. and magenta. And yeah, like fuchsia, like a real deep blue, yeah. a teal or like hints of gold and even like a little bit of like some kind of shiny reds. But that's a holiday color you're saying? It's like implying festive without implying Christmas. It's like kind of winter color. So so the agency had made this like kind of purple background for all their comps and we were going with that. But then I just started looking at all these references and I don't know about you, but like I just love shooting people against blue backgrounds because <laughs> Caucasian people, which are actresses, Caucasian, like lean into the orange color spectrum mm -hmm. and the opposite of orange is like blue, right? Or cyan or teal and... I don't know. I always think people look really good on blue backgrounds. They look really horrible on like yellow or orange backgrounds and they don't look particularly great on purple. So I was really like, I found all these awesome references of people. Like there's this great old Navy commercial. And I basically like got the art department, everyone on board. The DP's like, yeah, purple. No one looks good on purple. We're shooting blue, light blues, everything. 
and I had this whole presentation ready to go back to the agency and, you know, convincing them that we should shoot on blue. And then I was like, wait, but this, now we've lost completely this holiday thing. (laughs) It looks like, you know, Nantucket summer (laughs) bright, but it looks great. It looks great, but it's not pushing into these jewel tone holiday things. So I've literally spent the entire day, like I'll show you, I'll post them on the website too, which is something I always say and never do. Um, (laughs) But like basically like doing different renders of the sets in different colors to try to convince the agency. I don't know. I've just like never thought about color this much because mostly the stuff I shoot isn't too stylized. I I love shooting on location. I love shooting real things and people and being inspired by something really specific. But when you're going more abstract, color just starts getting to be so big and we want like... I've convinced the agency to have her, they wanted her to wear black because they're like, oh, it's like a neutral color. It'll match everything. And I was like, yeah, but A, it's so formal. B, she's like very fair skinned and black is like very dark, obviously. And like, it's hard to light and we'd only have four hours with her. So it wouldn't I, fit in, in Nantucket either, right? You need to. <laughs> yeah. But we're going anti Nantucket, oh. right? Because <laughs> we're going it wintry but it doesn't feel like a holiday thing it feels like a perfume ad or like a liquor ad or something i don't know anyway so i convinced them to have her wear a green dress but now my blue background doesn't look great with this green dress (laughs) and i have this chair that she's sitting in that i really liked mustard against my light blue background but now the mustard looks weird against this (laughs) purple background anyway it's, I've never worried about color as much as I have today. I'll let our listeners know on the next episode what the color palette we end up going with. And one of my very first endorsements on this podcast was this website called Cooler. It's like mm-hmm. an Adobe site, K-U-L-E-R. And it all it is is to make aesthetically pleasing color combinations. Yeah. So uh, another shout out to them. I didn't use <laughs> Cooler, but I should. <laughs> so anyway, that's what I've been working on this week. And it's uh, a lot. Yeah, I think that's it. So I'm going to plug the, our Patreon real quick. If you are interested at all in supporting our podcast, if you feel like you've been getting stuff out of it, if it inspired you to move to L.A. and uh, you're now depressed and sharing an apartment with someone and wondering why you did that, then uh, you might feel better about yourself by giving us a dollar a month. Uh, Patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. We really appreciate it. Helps us pay our editors, helps us throw live events, which we're going to throw another live event at the end of the year. Hopefully Liz comes to this one. Woo-hoo. She was not at the last one. Sorry. Um, it's okay. So let's talk to Emily Best. Okay. Hey, we have Emily Best here. Thanks Hi. for coming. Thank you for having me in this beautiful dining room. Oh, you're, you're welcome. So you you founded Seed and Spark. I did. It's my first baby. Um, yeah, in 2012. It has been a l- long and circuitous journey to where it is today, but um, we're about to turn six. That's Woo-hoo. crazy. Yeah. It's weird when you've like worked on projects for like longer than the lives of your kids. Yeah. Yeah. Like significantly longer. But I actually, it sort of helps me, right? Like when you think about a company as a, or a startup particularly, like, okay, it's a toddler. And what do toddlers do? Well, they fall on their faces all the time, but they just can't like get back up and keep running. And that's a perfect place for a startup to be because you're just conducting experiments. You know, like you watch your two-year-old just do physics experiments all day long. Do right? you? That's all they're is doing. Is what all I have to long. look forward to? Yes. You're going to, okay, it's great. the best part is like watching them learn everything about the world. Mm-hmm. Like you start from zero and you have to learn 
the names for everything. You have to learn the properties of everything. And I think starting a company is not unlike that. And so now we're like, we're a six-year-old. And so we have kind of a sense of what the world is and we have some really compelling interests, but like we don't necessarily know who we're going to become yet. And that's, I think, a really exciting place. Right. And if you are tired, you can just park your company in front of the TV for like... (laughs) 30 minutes to an hour? That's right. That's right. Cool. So what is, can you tell us about Seed and Spark? Sure. You know, it's taken me about six years to figure out how I really want to talk about it. And Mm. I used to say, you know, something about us being like a digital studio. But I think the best way to think about Seed and Spark is a creative marketplace akin to Etsy where in our greatest iteration, Seed and Spark is a platform on top of which tens of thousands of small content businesses will be built. Um, And the way that we're doing that is combining crowdfunding for creators and subscription streaming for audiences. But the ethos of the entire company is around transparency, equity, and access. So this is about breaking down all of the barriers and then using the internet for what it's best at, which is disintermediation and transparency and connecting people directly based on their interests. I think I followed most of that but like what if you're a filmmaker sure what what can you get out of seed and spark um well we are the number one crowdfunding platform in the world for movies and shows really? we have the highest campaign success rate the largest project size we pass about two times as much money per month to independent filmmakers as Kickstarter. Um, little known fact yeah wow. actually that's a but that's a really good fact <laughs> um and um Our business really has like three pieces. So the crowdfunding is actually piece number two. Piece number one is education. Um, We teach about 120 live workshops a year all over the country and starting to be all over the world. Um, Our flagship workshop is crowdfunding to build independence. Um, And it's, uh, it's honestly like a Trojan horse where um, we know that creators know that they need to learn kind of how to crowdfund successfully. And so they come because it's a workshop on crowdfunding. But what we're actually teaching is uh, the tools and the daily practices it takes to build an independent, sustainable career in the internet age. Audience building and sustainability for storytellers. That's exactly right. And Um, and is this like a cross... Like, I want to make a feature, I want to make a TV show, I want to make be a YouTuber, like everything? Yep. Yeah, um, I I think there's a lot uh, more content flexibility, and really, we should think about it as creative storytelling, right? Um, Podcasting is, is not really any different. It's all about connecting with an audience and understanding what they want. The formats are a little different. But if you think about the modes that we have to communicate with our audiences now... Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, those are all also storytelling platforms. So these are tools for building a career that creators have a unique competitive advantage to use, but I don't think creators think about them as creative tools the way that they can. And so that's really part of what the workshops focus on also is how do you leverage the tools for audience building to further your skills as a storyteller so that all of these pieces the audience building, which is really marketing, like nobody wants to call it that, but that's what it is, right? Um, But that it feels more organic to what you're trying to do in the first place, which is like enter the world as a storyteller, right? And so that's really what that workshop focuses on is um, how to build a direct relationship with your audience that you can maintain, how to really understand the importance of your data. And I have a real soapbox about that piece. (laughs) 
And then how to leverage all of that for distribution, not for just this film, but like making the next one and the one after that. So that's sort of piece number one. Piece number two is the crowdfunding platform itself, right? Which is mm-hmm. also, P.S., a storytelling tool. And then the, the most recent thing we launched was the subscription streaming platform. And that was really uh, because we realized that in the distribution landscape, there were no paths for data transparency for filmmakers. So, what, Sorry, what do you mean by data transparency? Great. Thank you. Great question. Um, <laughs> Emily has cue cards. Can I... Um, can I go can I go back to the beginning of film for a second? <laughs> Will you follow me there? Sure. Okay. So Ed, Edward Munch? What's his name? No. Uh so, M- Moybridge. The guy that like took pictures of the oh, horse. Oh, Moybridge. Moybridge, yeah. Yeah. So, uh the beginnings of the cinema business, um producers, creators, they never knew who their audiences were because people were pushing nickels through a window to go to the movies, right? You didn't have any audience data. It was just like people showed up or they didn't. Right. And your only models for knowing if something would succeed or if anything ever succeeded before. Um, So we don't have any real sense of like who's going to see the movies or why. Right. And then, you know, about 50 years goes by and then everybody gets a box in their living room. Right. And now you can watch whatever you want among the limited choices. And again, the producers don't really know who or why the box right? being a TV, TV not a Nielsen box or <laughs> that's anything, right. right well so Nielsen can you know you could elect to be spied on uh, by Nielsen but even then they're aggregating they're aggregating data like viewership points but not motivations right why does somebody watch that what are they interested in did they hate watch it like we don't know any of these we didn't have any of that right. direct response then the internet comes along and you're like yes we can finally get our data But a thing has happened, which is that the entire film business has been built around the absence of good customer data. So all of their green lighting models are backward looking. What what worked before is what will work again in the future. And they are rife with bias because in the absence of good customer data, your marketing team just makes assumptions. And those assumptions led to like absolute demographic based advertising, which was Uh, Women films are for women people and black films are for black people, but white male films, those are for everyone, (laughs) right? And that was what the model would continue to reinforce because that's what had been true before and so on and so forth, right? And they would continue to invest more money in the stuff that had made money before and so it would make more money. That's it. All they knew how to do was spend money to make money. The internet comes along and this was an opportunity for us to like actually find out how and why people are motivated to make purchases. We get direct response through things like social media problem. The internet hit the music business first and just dissolved it and decimated the revenue structures, right? Because you used to make basically a $12 profit margin on a CD and then a digital download all of a sudden was like worth nothing. Right. And that meant that Hollywood looked at the internet not as an opportunity, but as a threat. And so they were not looking for like opportunities to leverage the internet for better audience understanding. They were just like, this is gonna destroy our profit margins, what do we do? Um, Netflix was incredibly shrewd out of all this. They saw the broadband thing coming way before everyone else. Well, they were doing like demographics on their DVD business, right? Absolutely, right? So they were thinking about audience data from the very beginning. They were helping the studios continue to make fat-ass revenues on their DVDs, right? Um, And then waited for a really shrewd moment when international syndication deals 
were starting to dry up and studios were getting nervous about their revenues. And Netflix went to them and was like, hey, we will pay you X plus one, your international syndication deals for these TV shows for this like streaming thing we're going to try. And we'll super protect all of your IP. And just like all of your syndication deals, we will also not give you audience data. And the right. studios are like, cool, we are IP companies. We are not IT companies. We wouldn't know what to do with data if you gave it to us. Doesn't matter. We have our own systems. Go for it. And that set the precedent. The platforms have the data. The creators do not. And that means you and me, and that means A24, and that means Paramount. We don't have the data. The platforms have the data. They don't share it at all. And well, that's their competitive like a advantage. YouTube shares it. They give you when people stopped watching your video. They give you demographic. And Vimeo. Geographic Vimeo, yeah. um, data. They give you like links, links in and links out. Give you a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm sure there's more. I mean, there's inroads to data uh, right now, like Facebook is analytics. I mean, Google analytics. And sure. if you're an independent creator and you didn't sign an NDA or confidentiality clause, you can talk about the customer data for your films. But it's these larger systems that have blocked us from getting the information that we need. Here's two challenges, right? One is from the places where the audiences are really consuming like long form content like the platforms like Netflix, um, you can't get any data. And then the platforms like YouTube can just change the rules on you at any moment. So YouTube and and Amazon give you maybe a little bit more analytics, although it's still top level. It's not user level. Um, Or you go to one of these sort of like larger, more prestigious platforms and you get no data whatsoever. So here's the challenge. Um, every creator in 2018, whether you like it or not, is an internet entrepreneur. Why? Because the vast majority of the sales of anything that you make are going to happen online. And when you say every creator, are you including like a Ryan Coogler and a... Um, um, Colin Trevorrow. Sorry, Colin I'm Trevor. just picking Yeah, no, no. Sorry. So, um, so yes. I want to not draw a distinction between like the people who've quote unquote made it in the system and the people who haven't right now, because all of us are suffering the same fate, which is... All of our stuff is really being sold online, whether it's the tickets to our movies or, or the streams of our film. It's all being, that's all being brokered online. An internet entrepreneur would have complete transparent access to the who, what, when, where, why, and how of those purchases. And that is the only thing that allows you to make super smart and efficient marketing decisions about your stuff. Um, otherwise, you just have to spend money to make money in the old way, right? And if you don't have a $200 million marketing budget, as most of us don't, You can't compete in the internet age with no data. You can't. That's why independent distributors started dying off by the thousands in the late aughts because they had all been forced to become online businesses, but they had no access to the data that would give them a chance to be successful that way. So we have this hybrid of the old and the new model where the old model relied on those higher revenues. So you would would spend, but at least you could make it back in your DVD revenue, right? And now you have the old model where it's really spendy to get stuff seen, um, but the new revenue situation where like a stream is not worth that much money individually. That's a really bad situation to be in. And that's the precedent we've set. And as a result, Netflix has all the power, right? They have all the audience data. They're greenlighting things based on data-driven decision-making. That's forcing a massive consolidation around them. So the thing is, when you have all of your audience data and other people don't, you also kick ass at programmatic ad buying. 
So Google search terms and uh, Facebook ads and Instagram ads, like you'll kick everybody's ass at that also. So not, not only does Netflix have their own audience data advantage, they also have a massive advertising advantage. But the challenge in that environment is like, uh, the companies that would compete with Netflix, they, they're all missing some piece of that puzzle. So you see this massive consolidation happening, right? AT&T's buying Time Warner and Disney's buying Hulu and... Um, and Fox, yeah. Right, and the, or, yeah, sorry, yeah, for Fox, 21st Century Fox. And like all of these massive consolidations are happening. So there was this moment where we're like, oh my God, there's so many buyers in the marketplace. But like in a few years, there might be five, and right. that's like, that's not a good environment. So when I say yes, in some senses, it's all creators. Um, like Ryan Coogler has a studio behind him, but he has to wait for somebody to say yay or nay to stuff. And he's getting to the point where like he's a green lighter and a decision maker in his own right. And that's the goal, of course. But that's a super narrow path that's only available to a very, very, very few people. And the rest of us are just out in this landscape trying to make a living. And my attitude is we have the tools and the opportunity to build a new system that does not squeeze from the top, that is not so nearly fraught with bias and inequity, and isn't for the most part like the playland of the wealthy already. But we just have to do business differently. And data transparency has to be a part of it. Well, I want to go back to Seed and Spark, though, because um, I feel, I don't know if we have similar opinions about this, but the idea of audience building and marketing being the same thing, right? So what we talk about at Sundance is the idea of um, you are the brand and people are investing in you as an individual rather than necessarily 100% your project because they're giving to you because they want to help you. They want to help you build a network. And if there's something philanthropic and loyalty-based about it. That's You're talking of, about crowdfunding I'm talking about crowdfunding. But that that does kind of transition to marketing your project as well. If you can build a brand out of your personality, then hopefully that transitions into building a community. So I used to say something similar. Mm-hmm. And I've met enough introverted filmmakers who that right. makes them feel like completely shut out of the They're world. They're terrified. Well, I don't, think, I don't think it's true that it's your personality. Okay. I think it is your your brand, quote unquote, is your voice as a storyteller, right? It's how you enter into the world, how you see the world, your particular curiosity about the world. And I don't think social media is a place for you to talk about you and demonstrate your personality so much as it is a place for you to make space to connect the people around the shit that's interesting to you and to them mutually. Um, And that, I know, makes people feel less like scared of and icky about building this quote unquote brand. Your brand is your voice as a storyteller, right? Like it's, I hate this example, but like Quentin Tarantino makes movies about a lot of different things. Foot fetishes. For example, but you always know it's a Tarantino film. Or take like you, you, you know even the Ryan Coogler's, you know, when you look at Black Panther versus Fruitvale Station, like none of no one has that Signature sure, like Tarantino okay. does. So, so it's like Coogler, it's hard Coogler to is a great example because like I just want to know how he'll interrogate anything. 
I'm interested in his brain and his approach, and I want to see him do small stories and giant stories, right? And I think his attention to detail is immaculate. So, like, that's less like Tarantino, who's just every film is, like, hitting you over the head with its Tarantino-ness. Kugler has, like, an approach on the world that's very interesting. Like, Creed is actually one of my favorite modern Hollywood films because... I was like, when the when the 12 o'clock boys drive by in the scene where he's running down the street, I wept because I was like, this is the America that nobody sees. And I was like, it was so beautiful, right? First of all, I love everything you're saying. I think it's awesome that Seed and Spark is giant. I know Kickstarter, crowdfunding, that whole movement has like enabled so many people to make amazing things. And, you know, there are people like the... Freddie W is the world. Do you know him? Freddie Wong is like a big YouTuber. YouTuber. He started this channel called Rocket Jump. He did all these like his own like little VFX videos, but then he did a series called VGHS, Video Game High School. Oh, I've heard of that. Um, and he, I think he had the biggest crowdfunded web series. They raised like a million dollars for the second season. And they had offers from studios and stuff. And they're yeah. like, no, we're going to nope. do it ourselves. And they're, I mean, talk about being <clears throat> connected to their your audience. I think they probably have like 5 million subscribers on YouTube, which... Yep. Is a lot for like kind of a niche, you know, yeah. channel. But he's doing like big commercials now too. I mean, he's directing like he's living the dream in yeah. a certain. Yeah, and sense. he still and has Rocket Jump and that audience, yeah. which feels disappointed that he's not theirs anymore. <laughs> you know, all that to say to set up my some devil's advocate type Great. stuff that I'm just curious about because I feel like filmmakers, especially new filmmakers, are getting like two really strong messages that are the exact opposite from each other. And it's great because we just interviewed the opposite message that these two guys, they run a website called Short of the Week. One of them used to Mm -hmm. be a Vimeo staff pick guy. And the other one also has some background in curating shorts and film festivals and all, all that stuff. And they made this list of like things to do with your short their their thing was like be everywhere all at once you know mm-hmm. put it on vimeo put it on youtube t- show it to the world like there's all these great festivals that don't even disqualify you by doing that yep. um but one of their big points is like you are a filmmaker not a marketer like stop worrying about building your audience and obviously you, you're shaking your head that. here liz is shaking her head here i let me tell you the yeah. thing that i hate the most to hear is anybody who is reinforcing and encouraging the culture of dependence this idea that you go be the special artist that you are and you let somebody else worry about the business that's the culture of dependence that has landed us in this situation in the first place well, it's also protecting the artist it's like treating it like they're a mystical figure when they're not they are business people no it, to me it's just a time thing like should I spend because I, I was a YouTuber I mean I didn't it was many years ago but you know I had I have over 50 million views on my YouTube channel and all that stuff I was like deep into like getting views and connecting with my audience and answering every comment and making websites and like doing all that bullshit and guess what I was not <laughs> doing I was like not writing screenplays I was not writing a feature I was not doing stuff because I was spending all my time like seeing how many views my videos had and not that I'm in any better a place now per se, but I see the people, the Ryan Coogler, sorry to bring him up a million mm-hmm. times, the Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay and I had a movie, our first movie's premiere at the same film festival at the same year. And I mean, this is a, not a humble brag, just a mm-hmm. brag, but like we won the audience award and they came in second. <laughs> um, and I was obsessed with like the internet. I have, I have an engineering background. I loved all that stuff. And she just went and wrote movies and made them. Do you, you know? know what Ava's background is? Publicist. Um, She's a publicist and marketer. And never once didn't press those set of skills 
to her films. And she, in fact, built a distribution company um, that was all grassroots audience building marketing called Array. And that was the tool she used to launch not just her own career, but other careers. But did she build that pre-Selma or post-Selma? Way pre-Selma. Let me say this. I am talking about building an actually independent, sustainable business. If you want to go and play the game the way that the game has always been played, that is one of elitism and getting in behind the red ropes and behind the closed doors. And with all due respect to Sundance, like, you know, part of the reason... Oh, I don't work for the festival. You can say whatever you want. (laughs) Um, No, I love the Institute. Uh, With all due respect to sort of the dream festival... What's an independent filmmaker's current best path? You have to go out and independently finance and produce your film. And then what? Then you wait to get picked by a festival. You wait to get picked by a sales agent. You wait to get picked by a distributor. What the fuck is independent about that? Well, I guess, I think, yes, you might be waiting to do that, but you're also making your next movie. How? How are you making your next movie? Unless you have a giant- The same you made your first movie. With a giant store of cash? How are you making your next movie? How did you make your first movie? Well, usually it's- a piece of crowdfunding and some sweat equity. And usually most people have to wait to see how their first film did in order to make their next film. And most films that go to Sundance, despite what everyone says, don't sell. They do service deals. They get stuff. but Well, like, they get distribution, but it's not these like pie-in-the-sky deals that you hear about once. I mean, the, the outliers Getting distribution get and selling headlines. are different, right? Like one is I'm paying to get distributed, which happens to a lot of them. Yeah, and another they're not is, profitable. They're not profitable. And therefore, like... Second films don't get made. Like there's an amazing statistic, and I think I think I learned this from Ava's Twitter feed. But there was just there's this long history of like black filmmakers whose first films go to Sundance, and they get maybe a small deal. And because distributors don't have the sort of like footprint and understanding of how black films are distributed, there's like a sort of rote way that they would get distributed. They wouldn't succeed. And then it was really, really hard for black filmmakers to make their second film. The same thing happens for films made by women, right? Like this is a pattern we can see over and over again. If your first film doesn't perform for a whole host of reasons that in 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 this quote unquote, independent thing you have no control over because you've waited to be picked by the festival. You've waited to be picked by the sales agent. You've waited to be picked by the distributor. You don't know shit about distribution, so you can't help them do it But well. I think that's the core. Like, that's what we talk about is if you don't know anything about distribution, you choose a poor distribution partner, and then you go down that path of having your release not being customized or, or in any way uh, created to match the film that it is. If you don't know how to talk to your audience, how should you expect anyone else to know how to talk to your audience? You're making your film for your audience. So this idea that like somebody else should just swoop in and know how to speak perfectly to my audience about the delicate individual flower that is my you know, unique individual film. It's like absurd on its face. But I I don't think that's what like the short of the week guys are saying. I think, I think there's kind of two schools of thought. There are the people who build a relationship with their audience, build a strong brand, whether they're getting distribution or not, they're making profitable movies. There's, I mean, there's kind of the Liz Manichel model, which Mm -hmm. is like, she's making a movie and it's, I'm assuming it's profitable. And then she's making another movie and she's, she, is being very smart about how she designs the script and the budget and the distribution. Not to mention she has like this insane background in like 
transparent distribution. This is very nice. Empty of you. word. <laughs> well, here comes the it's gonna but. Get, I'm gonna get a blowback soon. <laughs> but like, if you want to make Creed, if you're making a franchise, right. which is a franchise movie, if you want to make Black Panther, if you want to make Selma, even you're you not. You have to start with Middle of Nowhere, and you have to start with uh, Fruitvale Station. You have to start with a small right. film but also, that speaks directly to an audience and that kicks ass. And like nobody way, deserves to start by making Creed. Right, but Fruitvale Station, which might, you know, he tried to make Creed before he made Fruitvale mm-hmm. Station and Sylvester Stallone's like, no, who the fuck are you? Exactly. But I guess my point, which is totally just something I'm making up with <laughs> no evidence to back up, no data. Um, <laughs> anecdotal. Anecdotal is that whether Fruitvale Station made a hundred million dollars in theaters or a hundred thousand dollars in theaters, he would have gotten Creed because it was a good movie. Like that the distribution doesn't matter. I mean, it was an Oscar nominated too, which doesn't hurt. But uh, I guess I... Well, it goes I, back to press and publicity. It's a good movie, but it got the buzz and it got the attention where people... Like you talked about this last time when you were talking about how important it was to see your movie poster at the Arclight oh, theaters. From, yes, from a personal like, <laughs> I want my movie to be in theaters, but... But it's also so getting noticed. I've made two movies. The first one I mentioned, you know, played a lot of festivals, like kind of upper mid tier festivals, you mm-hmm. know, not the Sundances, but the AFIs or whatever. Um, and it kept winning audience awards and it was pretty much broke even. It was a $700,000 movie. Mm-hmm. And after we got fucked over by every distribution deal like possible, we still kind of, you know, almost broke even. But my second movie, which everyone tells me not to even talk about, it was a lifetime movie got seen by probably a hundred times more people. Mm-hmm. And literally people are like, even though I don't think it's like a horrible movie. It's a lifetime movie. It's mm-hmm. I, you can probably guess the plot right now. Um, but <laughs> not without my daughter. Is that not it? Woman in it's, peril. It's Lori Lachlan yeah. from yeah. Full House <gasps> Amazing. and her daughter. Yes. Yeah. Cousin Becky. Yeah. Who, Cousin Becky and Becky. Someone's Aunt Becky. Becky. Yeah. Her daughter is, she thinks every guy she sees is trying to murder her daughter. So she murders them first and turns out in the second act, that her daughter was murdered years ago and she's just a, escaped from a mental asylum and thinks her daughter's with her. Wait, don't give it all away. I want to see. That's like by minute 20, pretty much. I, I don't know how many TV movies you guys have made, but minute 20 is when everything is given away because that's when you're supposed to come back after the first commercial break. Wow. Uh, anyway, the point, my, I guess my point is, so there's one anecdotal story. Another anecdotal story is I have two videos on YouTube. Uh, one is called Please Don't Watch This. It has 9 million views. Mm-hmm. It's literally me with my webcam, like saying, why are you watching this? <laughs> um, another video called I Hate My Roommates has 12 million views. It's like five, like a few of my roommates rapping, whatever, right? And then I made this video called, uh, I, I don't even remember what it was called, but it was about the writer's strike. Mm-hmm. It has 35,000 views. And I made one for William Morris. You know, they do their like internal videos. It has like 8,000 views. Mm-hmm. Those two videos got me... So much more work than my multi-million viewed videos. Okay, so a couple, a couple of things. One is intentionality really matters, right? Um, if you want to build up to a career making massive movies, you have a couple of paths. And one is be an alum from a major film school with a sick network make a perfect first film with the support of all of the right investors and institutions, and that will get you a lot of work. Everything I just said is not available to 99.9% of creators on the planet. And like, like the people who can do those first two things, they're going to be fine. 
I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about the creators in Chattanooga who are trying to build a sustainable living in Chattanooga and the creators in Atlanta who are trying to figure out how to leverage all of the things that are happening in Atlanta to build an independent, sustainable film scene there that is not like that wouldn't all evaporate tomorrow if the tax credits dried up. Right. Which is what happened in North Carolina. And all those creators had to literally leave their families and go somewhere else. It's not necessarily true that 90 million views is the sustainable career because 90 million views on YouTube from a bunch of 13 year olds doesn't mean shit. You're right. Um, Especially not when YouTube like doesn't pay you anything for that at this point. It could be that the 35,000 correct views are the ones that help you build the independent, sustainable career. So you have to be really intentional about what you're doing. And I think it's possible to waste a lot of time chasing views. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about building audiences. And those audiences are your like core group of supporters Maybe there's 20 or 40 of them in every city, but when you do put your movie out or you do go talk to a distributor, you're like, I have 50 email addresses of people who will evangelize the shit out of my film in these 10 theatrical markets, right? And I know how to reach them and I know what will activate them and I know what will help them activate their communities. That's a different conversation than walking into a distributor and being like, did you like my movie? I'm just interested in the creator actually having enough information, intelligence, and power to have some leverage in a room, whatever room you want to be in. For some of, for some creators, they don't want anybody to tell them anything about how to do anything. They need to spend more of their time building uh, an in, you know, independent relationship with their audience, and they're going to be more mired in the business. Other creators need to learn enough about their audiences so that they can be a really intelligent, thoughtful, and meticulous partner to whoever they choose to help them put out their movies. Either way, the current system takes the power away at some point by putting all of the audience data that is your audience data behind a shrouded wall And that value is accruing to the platform and not to you. And I don't think that's a fair system. So like for me, part of this is I'm building it outside of that system because I don't think the power of that data and what creators can do with it should accrue to the distribution platforms who are making themselves super rich on the back of all this work that creators are doing. I think that power should accrue directly to the creators and then they can decide what they want to do with it. Like that's why we built in a distribution platform that is trans totally transparent around streaming data. You can hook in your Google Analytics if you want to, um, and we're constantly like that's our technology challenge is trying to build in more and more ways. So with all that, like I guess for our listeners, like all the philosophical stuff is great, and like everyone hates the system until they're in it. You know, <laughs> uh, even when they're in it, they hate it. Yeah. So our listeners are filmmakers mostly, right? You know, whether in film school or they just moved to LA or they've been here for like twenty years making yeah. films. What uh, is Seed and Spark going to give them? Like, wh- why should they use it? Sure. So, on the crowdfunding side, we're just, you have your highest chance of success at crowdfunding on Seed and Spark. We have an 80% campaign success rate. Um, and a success is when you reach your goal. When you reach your goal. Um, and do you keep your money if you don't reach your goal? Um, no, you keep your money at 
you have to raise 80% to keep your funds. Oh, okay. And the reason we did that is because we are all ourselves independent filmmakers. And we know that when you get 80% of your money, you'll do it with that plus a pound of flesh and you'll be fine. Yeah. So the crowdfunding side, you just have your greatest chances for success with us. And that's because we really invest in education and a real crowdfunding expert reviews all of your campaign materials and gives you feedback and helps with the pitch video and all of those things. Really? Like, can you elaborate on that? Sure. So you type in all of your stuff and you upload hopefully only a rough cut of your pitch video. Um, we, we get bummed to see the sort of like sound design color corrected version of the pitch video because they're never right the first time. And do you have, you, you pretty much have to have a pitch video. I've seen not movies be crowdfunded on like patent application, you know, on Kickstarter. Yeah, but like these things. are movies. You have right. to show them what you're doing. Like if you're, if you're a patent application, at least you could review the patent application. Right. If you're right. Well, I mean, ostensibly, you could look at a treatment. You could look at a deck. You could look at a no. Audiences don't know how to do that. That's not how it works. No, because that's assuming that the industry is funding you. That's not what you want. You want audiences to fund you, and you have to. But you could also say, by the way, I have Michael B. Jordan is going to be in this. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like Selena Gomez. These. No, these Taylor Swift. Come on. This this idea maybe Taylor Swift. Crowdfunding doesn't work like studio green lighting like it's not the same materials that get people excited because we're talking to audiences we're not talking to industry and uh it's not the same elements like what makes a successful crowdfunding campaign is usually a movie that hollywood can't make um or won't for whatever reason um like we've seen celebrity driven rom-coms fail in crowdfunding because people are like just let netflix fund that like, you don't need my help. But for the rest of us who are not celebrity brands, what really drives people is feeling like the world will be worse if this film doesn't get made. So one of the things that we have started doing at Seed and Spark are called crowdfunding rallies. Um, and what we're doing is trying to link the work that you do in crowdfunding to the sort of prestige level that a lot of filmmakers are going after. So we partnered last year with the Duplass Brothers, and we did a crowdfunding rally called Hometown Heroes. And in order to enter, you had to have, uh, in this case, it was narrative feature films that you were going to spend 75% of your budget in whatever you identified as your hometown um, on local talent and resources. And they were looking for the next puffy chair, right? Like the, the, the small contained film that could launch a career. And we had 56 projects get the green light as a result. And they had to hit some minimum like fundraising and follower requirements. And at the end of it, 56 projects from 45 different hometowns, none of which were New York or L.A., got the funding and the audience they needed to take the next step. And two projects were selected by the Duplass brothers for executive producership. And one of them got $25,000 in investment from them. Um, those two films have completed production this summer and it came with, um, you know, tons and tons of press. It came with, uh, you know, help from the Duplass brothers. It came with, uh, extra funding. It came with casting, but more than anything, um, I think the success stories are the films that didn't win and what they realized in, in the process of, uh, of crowdfunding is they still got to go make their movies because like the other finalists, they've all also shot their movies and they've finished funding and now they're all heading towards the festival circuit as well. 
So I think there is something to be said for kind of starting to understand crowdfunding as a way to pick yourself, right? Like, yes, it would feel great to get chosen by the Duplass brothers and there's advantages that come to that. But also there's a bunch of filmmakers who just all of a sudden had a ton of fans and money to go make the thing that they wanted to make. So you mentioned to another I'll a lot of these films are going to the festival circuit. Mm -hmm. Remove the seed and spark part of Mm -hmm. your experience. How important do you think the festival circuit is, given that one of your kind of pillars of your philosophy is that filmmakers are connecting directly to their audience? So I think festivals are an excellent place to connect directly to audiences you would never otherwise meet face-to-face. I think... um, I think there's things that filmmakers and festivals could do to better make that connection. So what I say to filmmakers, especially filmmakers who are making shorts, when they take them to festivals, you should show up to that festival with a notebook. And when you have a successful screening, you pass around a notebook and you get everybody's email address who's asking you the inevitable question, which is, what's next? And you're like, sign up here to find out. And your festival circuit becomes a way to build a deeper, more direct connection with audiences you would never otherwise meet. I'm an executive producer on a film that has been to like, I want to say 10 or 15 festivals in the past couple of months all over the country. And I want the filmmakers to be at as many of them as possible and collecting email addresses because these women were using this film to also launch their co-producing and like co-creating careers, right? So this was the film that is launching in effect like their brand as storytellers. Um, And so leveraging festivals to deepen that direct connection is really great. I really, I'm advocating for festivals to start making it super easy for filmmakers to collect information from audiences that audiences would volunteer. Well, and if you, if they don't allow them to collect uh, data, then at least give them a piece of the ticket sales. Yeah. Like that's my Mm. personal vendetta is like, if they're marketing the title, if they're getting people in the audience, if it was a theatrical run, they'd get a piece of the gross. What if they're flying you out and putting you up? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, there's a trade off. And also it's like, if you get a speaker's fee, like there's lots of things. Um, But I also, we advocate we say clipboard, not notebook. Yeah. I don't think Sundance actually allows people to pass clipboards around. Nope. So when I tell people at work <laughs> to do it, I say, except for Sundance, right. even though I work for them. Um, but yeah, I, but I the problem with my same argument, I'm going to contradict myself, is these festivals are floundering and they're not surviving and they're based off of volunteer labor and that volunteer labor doesn't know what the hell they're doing half the time and I love all the festival volunteers I've met. Um, so you're stuck in this. I would love to turn festivals into theatrical. Yep. Like that's the goal, right? Or that's... Yep my dream um no i think festivals are super important i think you have to leverage them strategically and i think you can't it's not just an opportunity to go and drink beers can i ask a totally that thank you for that answer but can i ask a (laughs) totally unrelated question it's related to festivals but not anything else we've been talking about i've been asked this question three times in the past week just by total coincidence but if you got into a like c plus b minus level festival just to be totally subjective about it should you put those laurels on your film and tell people about it when you're like sending it out or does Do you that... already have the a plus festival laurels no so but... it's the, it's the in the absence of any laurels yeah it's like you didn't get into sundance you didn't get into con you didn't get into any any of the top like 10 festivals the vast majority of display mechanisms for laurels the laurels show up real tiny <laughs> So I think if there are multiple laurels to be lined up, yeah, line them up. And like 
people don't know. Like, like beyond Sundance and Tribeca, honestly, or maybe South by, like the vast majority of the world doesn't know the name of any festivals. So like it's whether it says True False, which is totally an A plus festival or uh, Crossroads, which is also a Britney not, Spears film. Yeah, it's like yeah. any festival we're going to say, we're going to feel bad if we call it a C minus. <laughs> no, right, right. Mike, I, I always say like Mike's, Mike's Backyard Mike's, Festival. Mike's Backyard Festival. <laughs> like m- the vast majority of people don't actually know the difference between those. And so. But I do. And you do. Right. We know if we've never heard of it or if it's like Saratoga or Napa. And we're like, I think that's an okay Actually, festival. no, Saratoga, Napa, I would say put it on your poster. Hell yeah. But I think, look, the, the laurels are, again, like, are you, is your audience the industry or is your audience people who are going to actually see your film? Well, because I think if the laurels are for industry, right? Like a normal person, do they, I mean... If they're like a film buff, but not in the film industry, sure, they're like, oh, this is a Criterion collector, or this is a Sundance film, or this is from this filmmaker. But in general, I feel like those laurels are like prestige, film industry prestige That's a pet peeve of mine, because I I curate and I um, program films for our fellowship. And so I watch a lot of trailers and I look at a lot of applications. And when I see a film that has three or more of these laurels, I actually discount it. Because I, I know that they're putting too much value in a festival that's not providing value to them. And then they'll write some sort of bio that says, we just won an audience award at Mike's Backyard Festival. And I'm like, well, I've done the same thing. I've bragged about something that isn't really brag worthy. And you can see through that as a quote unquote horrific evil gatekeeper. And you start to devalue that content. I don't know. If I saw 20 festival laurels of any kind on a film and uh, and the cover letter were like, we went to these festivals, we consorted with audience, we built a 5,000 person emailing list well, of that, people yeah, in that's great. these 15 cities. I would say, no, those people kicked ass at going to all of those festivals. So I, I like, this is the thing, like <laughs> the problem that I have with the question in general is it's all about perception and it's not about practice. If you go to those festivals and you build meaningful relationships with audiences and as a result of going there, good things happen for you, like you grew your mailing list, you met a person who's going to collaborate with you on your next film, that that festival is significant for you and it was an important touchstone for your film. And this idea that now we have to like, you know, it's, it's all fucking posturing and it's like, well, just do the work. This is why I don't like this, like, sort of like you just go be a filmmaker. No, do the work that supports the thing that you want to do in your life, which is make a living making movies. Yeah, make do a that living work. posturing, by the way. That's kind of what our job is. No, I don't agree. I think there is real actual That's why we have to make a do. video when we're making a, when we're doing a crowdfunding campaign. Can I jump on what you're saying? Because I'm in the middle of you two um, about the pitch video. For me, it's, I obviously want to see that they're a good storyteller and that they could create a quality video. But most important for me is authenticity and seeing their passion. Like if it's just five minutes of them looking at the camera and it's not them droning on, but it's them saying, this is my life stream. I've done X, Y, and Z to make it happen. I just need you. I'm sold. It doesn't need, for me, it doesn't need to have the production value of a super stupendous film. That authenticity goes a long way. So having said, heard that from Liz and you being pretty much a professional at <laughs> what videos work, like, yep. um, what, what do you say? How do you pitch your project? Um, your 
Crowdfunding pitch video is for the audience of your movie. It is not for industry, right? And so, sure, maybe we have to do a lot of posturing for industry, but authenticity is really what matters. Um, But your audience is not your grandma or your mom. So generally speaking, um, most videos that involve somebody talking directly to a camera will only result in friend funding. Because if you aren't anyone yet, there is nothing at the top to grab someone to say, holy shit, look at this person's storytelling abilities. Right. Unless you're like a Hannah Gatsby or someone that can, with just your voice, <laughs> right. be like, be move just someone so to tears. Exactly, yeah. right? Like, unless that is your core competence. Unless it's like, I'm a stand-up comic and I'm going to turn this into a film. That's different. Um we say that the first 15 to 30 seconds of your video have to be for the audience of your film and should show not tell. <laughs> like, I think it's it's all the basic stuff that we knew from the beginning. Like, you just need to show people in the first 30 seconds that you can do what you're promising. So make me feel something. And that, that doesn't have to be like a scene that you shot. It could be a mood that you create and a really smart voiceover. I mean, we've seen somebody like shoot a bunch of like very kind of basic, easy um, setups and then weave a voiceover that told uh, a really compelling um, uh, like thriller, right? Laid up this thriller with like really good mood and they wove their crowdfunding pitch into that story. And by the end, I was like, man, this person knows how to make a movie. This person will be murdered if they <laughs> don't hit their goal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like this person that we we had a, a genre uh, piece where it was a direct-to-camera address, but he... I don't know how he did this. He parked his car in what looks to me, it probably couldn't be this, but it looks to me like the second street tunnel in downtown Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And he gets out in a, like a hazmat suit and, and it's like covered in blood. And then like at some point goes to the trunk and before he opens the trunk, you like, it takes you to another place. Right. So, but it is a direct address and he's just talking about this movie. He's super passionate about bringing you into the world as well, but he's bringing you into the story world. Right. So, The best videos give us a sense of the story that you're trying to tell tonally and your creativity as a storyteller, um, but they also introduce us to you. But we can't, I don't think we see you, generally speaking, like I like the pitch videos where you set me up to know what your storytelling is like and then I meet you, right? So rather than being like, I'm going to tell you that I like, I love horror movies. They're like my favorite movies and I like love them more than anyone. And I've watched all of them and I'm going to make the scariest movie for you. I can handle that girl. If you, if she scares the shit out of me in the first 15 seconds of her video and she's like, I love horror movies. And I'm like, girl, I'm with you. Right. It's, right. it's also about like, I want to know, cause I'll, I'll give to crowdfunding campaigns cause I consult in crowdfunding as well. And I just want to know that my $5 is meaningful them. Yep. So all I want is gratefulness, humbleness, and passion. And obviously storytelling. Yeah. I, I understand. But do you, that. Do you best- not care about, sorry, but no, do you no. not care about like this question that we also get a lot? Like you want to think, like you said, Emily, that, This is a project that needs to be made. The best pitch videos answer four questions in the most creative way possible. Why me? Why this? Why now? And why do you, the audience, need to get involved? 
And the why me and why this can be answered with that great first 15 seconds, right? If I am the one who makes, who crafts something to give you a feeling, immediately you know why me, why this. Yeah, and that's the authenticity part, right? right? The why now is, I think, really important. And I think it's, we are in the most crowded political news cycle you could ever possibly imagine. And if you want to have a hope of getting noticed, you have to explain to people why this thing needs to be made now. And I don't think that's a bad thing because you're going to live with a feature film for seven years. It better fucking matter to you. Right. And you have to be able to speak with absolute authenticity. Yeah. I need to see that. You have to be able to say this thing has to get made right now or else. And that's what will really pull a lot of money. You can definitely say like it would be great if this thing got made right now and you'll raise like some money. But the things that do like this thing needs to get made right now. The time, you know, there's no time like the present. And this is why it's going to hit hard. And this is why it matters to you, the audience. And I have to know who you are. I can't be general about who this is for when I'm making that plea Um, because not every movie is for everyone. Like there just isn't a movie that's just for everybody. But I think you just, um, you have to be specific about who the audience is and it has to be uh, like, it has to feel like the world will be worse without it. Um, But I think you should feel that way about the thing you're about to make for the most part. If you're, especially if it's a feature. Just because I really like, concrete examples because yeah. I think they're really helpful. Yeah. Can you give us an example of a pitch video you've seen recently at the why now of it all of a project? Um, it's okay. If so every, I'll just say this every month on our blog, it's hard to describe a pitch video. Um, but every, every month on our blog, uh, we curate the best pitch videos of the month. And so you can go to the Seed and Spark blog and see those regularly. Um, there was a really interesting film that was part of a crowdfunding rally. And I, the reason that I hesitated is because I can't remember the name of it. And that's the worst. Um, it was a, it's a USC uh, grad team um, making a, uh, I, like what I can say about it is I can look at it and be like, oh, well, this is a film that's like really inspired by the Me Too movement. But it's a, it is a like post, uh, it, it's like a, a dystopian film in this, uh, in a universe where people don't get sent to prison. They get sort of erased and uh, sold into servitude. And this woman is sold into servitude. And as the video is happening, um, you think that makeup is being painted on her, but you start to realize that it's being removed and this whole thing's being played in reverse. And as the voiceover is happening to talk about really ultimately like women's agency and women finding a voice uh, through this story. The makeup is coming off and it reveals all these bruises underneath. And it's a, it's a, it's a movie about like abuse and uh, reckoning for women in a society that doesn't value them, right? And uh, rather than having to say it like that, she just painted this devastating image slowly as the voiceover happened. And it was so impactful. Um, an agent from APA reached out to me and said, I want to meet this filmmaker. Um, so to your point, it could be a, a 12 second or a, whatever, a, a 90 second video that changed the course of her career. Yeah. And meeting an agent from APA is pretty cool. Even if you have 5,000 emails from a film festival, right? But, but it's the work that the thing is like, Agents are looking for people who are self-generators. 
So you have to do the work. They're not looking for people who are looking to literally resign their agency to an agent. They're looking for people right. who basically don't need agents who are going to make money. Right. And you so, think of it as like people who are just shooting it. Is, yeah, you do. Who people so, are looking so for. So you do that work to set yourself up. It was because of all of the agency that she throwed, showed through her crowdfunding campaign and the success of that campaign that like also garnered the interest. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the answer, right? It's like connect with your audience, but also if the gatekeepers, the Liz Manishals of the world, <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry, um, are interested in what you're doing, then that's pretty awesome. Too. They're much likelier to come for you if you're doing this work. Well, yeah, you always have to make something. Uh, what is the biggest thing that someone looking at a distribution deal should watch out for? I mean, I'd like to hear your answer because look, I built a distribution company to like so that I could create a creator friendly model. You're talking about Seed and Spark. Yeah. And like the And that's the streaming side. The streaming side. Like we we put together the most transparent and creator friendly uh, agreement we could possibly put together, but also one that was standardized, right? So most distributors like it's basically like how good your lawyer is. And we were like, no, we're just gonna we're just gonna like make this totally transparent and creator friendly within the bounds of like what we need to accomplish in order to grow this. Right. And like that's most what we're going to do. Type of thing. Well, so, um, right. We're non-exclusive. And if you want to do exclusive, you just get paid a little more and we're totally transparent about what those numbers are. And, uh, I think generally speaking, um, you have to dig pretty deep into most distributor agreements to discover what reports they will give you. Um, but you know, there's a whole cottage industry in this business of putting a lawyer on retainer, knowing you're going to have to sue your distribution company for numbers. Um, that's a real thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so to me, I think it's like, what are the expectations around marketing and, um, and the returns? Um, and what, what, if it says like, you know, will recoup reasonable expenses. I want a written list of what you think reasonable expenses are, because that can definitely get you tripped up. Um, and uh, and then what data uh, you're going to get and when you're going to get it and exactly what intervals. And I had a friend call me the other day saying, I'm on the phone with my distributor who I just found out like our our film came off Netflix, which I didn't, I didn't know anything about the nature of that deal. And now I have all these audience, she had done a ton of audience building. Um, and now I have all these audience members who are contacting us pissed because it dropped out of their queue. And she goes to the distributor and the distributor's like, we're not at liberty to discuss the nature of those deals. That's crazy. Right? So you have to, yeah, you have to dig super deep to find out what they owe you. Um, I agree with all those answers. My my red flag that would lead you to distrust distributor is term length. If the term length in their boilerplate agreement is over 10 years, you know that you're with a backward facing distributor mm -hmm. um, and they will they will put together these arguments and they'll say things like, well, we need time to do international distribution. What about physical? We have to figure out ancillary. There's all these arguments. But 10 years is it? I mean, like my kid is going to be in yeah. the double like yeah. digits. Yeah. And like that's insane to me. Um, so I know we've had a little bit of this conversation before, I think. But to me, it's it's not necessarily the term like that's the problem. It's that 
that's the boilerplate. Reversion rights right. also. So what happens if it goes sour? Does Do the rights revert oh, right. back to you? Bankruptcy and, clauses. Yeah, and what happens if the distributor goes belly up, which yeah. happens a lot. And I will say this should be true of if you're selling a show to someone. Like there was a show that got canceled on... Um, on Netflix that the audiences really loved and there started to be this like seed and spark the show like trying to bring it back kind of a la Veronica oh, Mars was it a, like a freaks and geeks type of kind show kind of yes Mike Mohan's show maybe yes you're right whatever yeah, you're about yeah. to say is correct no, uh, I can't remember I know what it's the called the creators and they were um, talking about but some sort Netflix of way to bring owns it back. the rights to that IP for 99 years yep Oh, well. So, like, so what are you going to do? It's not that long. <laughs> and so that's where I think also um, it's not just in your distribution deals, but it's in any deal where you're selling your IP or licensing your IP to someone. You need to look at what the reversion rights are. If they cancel you outright, can you take it somewhere else to make it if somebody else is willing to make it? Or are you just becoming a victim of the great IP wars, which is part of what's happening, right? People buying stuff up and shelving it so nobody else can have it. Right. Um, for what it's worth, and this might seem somewhat self-promotional, so I'm sorry about that. Um, we're producing an evergreen document that's a breakdown of distributors, term lengths, what they look for in films. Yes. It's supposed to be. Who and is I, we? Uh, me and Rebecca Green. <laughs> um, I love these women. We're putting it on Dear Producer. We're going to put it on the Sundance website. I've been interviewing distributors for weeks now. Um, I'd love to get Scene Spark on there. Great. And um, ours is published on the internet. By I know. Way. I'll just like, copy paste <laughs> in our terms. And like nothing like this is out there. There's no like fact sheet on distributors. Yeah. And it's like I can't do a report card. I can't editorialize. But I can say from the mouth of their manager of acquisitions, they right. say their term length is five to 10 years. And they say they go to these festivals and they say they look for these rights. And so um, I'm like really, really excited about this. Liz Manichel is the fairy godmother of, of independent distribution. Do we nice. all know that? It's true. <laughs> I've literally had people call me and say, hey, I heard a... Uh, this woman, Liz Manishill, on your <laughs> podcast. Do you think I should talk to her about my movie? I'm like, I, you should always say yes. I don't I'll talk know. To anyone. Sure, if she has time. I don't. I, want I don't want to, to like everyone. waste very her time. Nice of these um, things that you're saying. I'll say when I so when we got screwed over with our distribution deal, yeah. our domestic distribution deal on my movie, I asked the CFO of the distribution company at like literally after I was yelling at him for like 30 minutes. <laughs> I said, if you're me, like, let's pretend you don't work for ARC Entertainment. Mm -hmm. That was a distributor. Let's say you don't work for ARC and you're me. What, how do you set up this deal so that you don't get screwed over like you're screwing me over? Um, Did he answer? He did answer. (laughs) And it was a really simple answer. He said, your deal is, I mean, it's what you just said. It's basically after expenses, you get 70%, 80%, we get 20%. Yeah. He's like, I would have just made a deal that's, we split the profits yep. 50-50 or whatever the, whatever the percentage is, we split the profit as opposed to splitting the leftover revenue. So there was, a, there was a person at the Weinstein Company whose job it was to expense out until they didn't owe anything to the filmmakers. That makes perfect sense. To it's just like, like gather up expenses. I've never and, heard that formalized, yeah. but I've had my suspicions about that for years. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's the package thing, right? Where it's like they'll expense things for a different movie on your movie because they're selling it as part of a package. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's called Hollywood accounting. <laughs> the um, flights to France. The yeah. And this is, you know, I went to American Film Market. The, the very beginning when I was a baby producer, my first film, somebody was like, you should go to American Film Market and like see how international sales is done. Yeah, a- and, AFM. AFM. Right. Um, 
And I made it a point to, like, I was just there for learning. I made it a point to sort of interview different people. And I remember talking to this German distributor and I was like, are you discovering new things here? And she was like, no, we know what we're going to buy when we get here. We just like the trip. Yep. Right? So all of this expense that's getting charged to all these movies that are there, these are deals that could be brokered via email. Right. right. But people like the Europeans love to come to Santa Monica in the winter. Yeah. And filmmakers are encouraged to go to AFM uh, and MIPCOM or whatever these things are for some reason. And I don't understand why. And it's usually their sales agents say, let me take your your, your film and shop it around at these markets. But um, ultimately, wh- what are they getting? Yes, they're being expensed the trip. They're being expensed the dinners. They're being expensed a marketing cost. They're doing presentations and booths. It's insane. And by the way, they have like their list of expenses that they'll apply against your film, even yep. if they don't. Like we were charged, we hired our own trailer editor and did our own trailer with everything, like the 5 1 mix and everything. Gave it to the distributor. They gave notes on it. And then they still charged us for a trailer. <laughs> I mean, we obviously like Dick. fought back and they uncharged like, oh, sorry, we forgot you guys did that. Sure, but we it's forgot. Like, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's like instant, like off the top of anything you might get. Here's like, you know, $120,000 that we need to expense against it that we do for every film. Anyway, oh, enough about getting so screwed. Um, okay, cool. Well, are you guys cool with moving into our unpaid endorsements? Like sure. Segment? Unpaid endorsements. <laughs> I want you to start because I feel like yours is really exciting. It's. I feel like it's not exciting. It's. it's How would like, you know? We've never heard it before. <laughs> I mentioned it before we started recording, but I feel like it's on the level of you should get a gas efficient car, <laughs> basically, because that's my endorsement. My endorsement is get a good Wi-Fi router, which is so boring and so not cool. But my brother is like a hardcore engineer techie guy, and I called him up the other day. I have this problem that I feel like everyone that I know that lives in a big city has, which is their Wi-Fi is is just not working as well as it used to work like 10 years ago. And it's because like right now, if you look, I mean, I live in a house. I'm not in an apartment building with like 100 apartments. If I open up my Wi-Fi, there's like 120 (laughs) Wi-Fi networks. I'm exaggerating a little, but there's like 30 or something. Um, There's just so much noise noise and Wi-Fi pollution. And so Wi-Fi just doesn't seem to work as well as it used to work before that. Five gigahertz, uh, even though it's faster, it like travels through walls a lot worse. Like those higher frequencies don't penetrate um, physical bodies as well. So so that's not a solution for anything. Anyway, what is a solution? I hope I just bought it. I haven't taken out of the box yet um, is this thing called a mesh network where you get like a Wi-Fi router. You connect it to your cable modem or whatever your fios or however you get internet and then you get a few other units and you put them in different parts of your house or apartment or yard or wherever you want to put them that you want to have internet and it creates a you know mesh of wi-fi and it's supposed to be really good and so used to call this something else like a booster or something yeah so well so we have uh you can see here this that's like our old airport Mm -hmm. express or something we have like an airport extreme by our cable modem and we have like a time capsule in the other room and I always thought that like that's what you do when you have like more than one router you kind of spread them throughout your house and they we thought they were repeaters like they're repeating the wi-fi signal but in reality they're not really made for that and they don't work well so like when you have when you're on your iphone or whatever in the living room and you walk to your bedroom and it has to switch from one router to the other one it like everything stops working for a few seconds and it might actually 
mess things up for other people that are connected to those same repeaters and everything. Anyway, all really boring stuff, but uh, there's like only like three or four brands, which I love buying something that there's not like 8,000 brands. Um, but Google makes, they call it Google Wi-Fi, and it's like a mesh network, and you can just keep buying as many of their little devices as you want to make as big of a Wi-Fi network as you want. So this is a great way to keep people listening to the podcast because I want to know like two weeks from now, <laughs> will you repeat this unpaid endorsement? That's what I want to know. Once you uh, set it up. Oh, no, but I have un- unendorsed something once. Oh, you did? Yeah, I got this thing. It's called the bug assault. It's like a salt gun <laughs> that you shoot at flies. That Everyone told me it's like so much better than a fly swatter. And uh, I not. just... Maybe I'm like the worst aim in the world or something, but I cannot get a fly to die with that thing. Um, anyway, so uh, the one I got is the Netgear Orbi. And the reason I got that one is because uh, with the Google Wi-Fi, if you're connected to anything but the main one, your speed is half as fast as the main one, which is usually fine for most people, yeah. like streaming videos. But since I upload a lot of big files, um, I wanted one that's equally fast everywhere. And the Netgear one does that. Anyway, that's all I got. Sorry, Sounds cool. long, super I want to know how it goes. One. I would like I, an update in two weeks. Yeah, well, now maybe you'll listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, who wants to go next? Do you have one? I have two. One is um, if you're based in Los Angeles, there is an acupuncture clinic called Universal Family Wellness that I feel like has maybe changed my life uh, completely. I go to a woman named Holly Anderson and... Uh, I went initially because, uh, to be perfectly honest, like I was in a, I was in a moment, starting a company, like making a film is really hard. And I realized, um, that I had basically been in fight or flight mode for like seven years and the company was getting to a place where fight or flight mode was not going to make me a good leader anymore. Like I needed to go out of reactive and into like responsive, thoughtful, calm mode. But I could feel that I was like chemically uh, like in fight or flight, no matter what, the way that I was reacting to things. Um, And then I got pregnant like a week later. (laughs) So I went in um, first with, hey, I'd like to like basically recalibrate myself chemically around uh, you know, how I react to the world. And this is using acupuncture? This is using acupuncture. And had you done acupuncture before? I had years ago, um, but for much more acute things like acid reflux or like hip pain. Or... You can do acupuncture for acid reflux? Oh, yeah. Guys, Guys I, I went to be so LA, but my dog has been doing acupuncture what? for like three years. Yeah, that's super what? good for dogs. Um, so what? I also went in, this is the other thing. So so I've been going for months and when I started going, I was having terrible insomnia Um, I was just, I was feeling sort of generally bad all the time. And even though I was in my first trimester of pregnancy and really nauseous, and by the way, like we hit some like bumps with the company and like funding and all this stuff, like all these terrifying things happen. And I was like super chill all of a sudden in a way that I had never been before. I was sleeping through the night, even when things were happening that normally would have kept me up. And so, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be Holly at Universal Family Wellness, but I think acupuncture has a lot more to offer than we have given it credit for. And I went in last week with wicked second trimester heartburn, and I went into oh, the appointment with terrible heartburn, and I came out without heartburn. What? So, yeah, so it all offers that also. If it could only alleviate my major anxiety about having a child, that would be... It can help. Okay. And will it 
get me the crowdfunding I need. <laughs> no, that you have to light uh, candles for. That's different. Oh, okay. That's a different kind of woo. You got to get crystals and candles for that. Uh, I was, I looked up like soul selling, <laughs> but I guess the candles is easier. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, since we have you here and you are an entrepreneur and do you have your own startup? Can Are there any podcasts you might recommend that are more on the startup? I mean, my what, probably my in my top three is like the first season of Startup, the podcast. First season of Startup. The most recent season um, that features Arlen Hamilton, who built a venture mm, capital yeah. fund called Backstage. They are investors in Seed and Spark. Oh, um, are you serious? Did yeah. you pitch to her? Yeah. Oh, really? Um, it was the greatest pitch of my life. Arlen and I had been communicating via Twitter for like two years. And when we finally got in the room together, she's like, man, I've been trying to invest in your company for like a year and a half. And I was like... Aww. Great. <laughs> and so then we just started talking like partners. And oh she. Oh, my goodness. That's um, so cool. She also invested in a moment when, like, this was now almost two years ago, when, like, I was going to run out of money. I was, like, not going to make payroll. And I called her. And she hadn't actually closed. We were the first investment out of Fund 2. She hadn't actually closed Fund 2. She wrote me a $10,000 personal check so that I could make payroll, closed Fund 2, and sent me the rest of the money. Like, she is a soul sister for life. Like she is a good human. So that season of startup is great. Um, I really love the podcast called how I built this. Oh yeah. Um, which I think is, um, really, uh, helpful to understand not just how companies get built, but the grit it takes to found one and like, like the obstacles that you actually face <laughs> along the way. Um, and I think that's helpful for artists because I think we we get the Hollywood story about what our um, path is supposed to look like. And it's just as hard as building any other company. But we, we are told the story like La La Land. Like if you just want it badly enough, somebody will see how special you are and pick you and then you'll be famous. And like that sucks. Because then you spend a bunch of time being like, I guess I'm not special. I guess I'm not special. As opposed to like, oh, no, I'm just in it and I got to keep working for it. So um, I love that one. Awesome. Thank you. Yep. You had another unpaid endorsement or was it? Do you know when you read a great book and you need everyone else to read it so you can talk to them about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it happened to me in 2004. (laughs) (laughs) Lauren Groff wrote a book called Fates and Furies, like the description of which was sort of uh, how a marriage comes together and 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 develops over years sounded so boring. It was one of the most, first of all, cinematic styles of prose, but like gripped me by the guts from page two and didn't let go until the end. And I was like destroyed at the end of this book. So you're saying page one isn't that good? <laughs> <laughs> you have. It actually takes a minute to get used to her prose style because it's not it's not descriptive. It's not, here's what happened. She, it works entirely in sort of image and metaphor. And so there are times when you realize something has unfolded, but she hasn't ever said what it is. And, and so you're just left with the images and it, it has, I feel like it all happened to me like a memory. And I've, I've basically never had that experience before with, uh, with fiction. So that's um, awesome. And and if you do read it, can you please uh, write to me so that we can talk about it? Yeah, Fates and Furies. Fates and Furies. Cool. Well, so Liz, what do you get? Uh, I have two two brief ones. I think I've already endorsed this in an unpaid way, <laughs> but um, I'm obsessed with Heavyweight, the podcast. I think it's like the best podcast next to what, I mean, Mystery Show was the best podcast, but Heavyweight is the second but um, have you guys listened to... No, what is it? Um, I think his name is Jonathan Goldstein. It's Gimlet. Um, it's like a very adorable, bumbling, neurotic man who tries to solve people's emotional problems. 
<laughs> and it's I just love I love it so much and I sweet. wouldn't even recommend one specific episode I'd recommend oh well, there's a Moby one that's very good oh about Moby was it about the person that like bought a bunch of it's about the guy who like lent him oh, yes. the songs that he sampled for his like hit album and like how oh, much I that heard affected about that him episode. it's so good heavyweights wait what <laughs> was the other one mystery mystery show is show. fabulous that's the, the one with that yeah where yes. she like finds out that Britney Spears yes. had the book Yes. In a photo. <laughs> and I thanks to Matt and Chrissy, they recommended Mystery Show to me. But yeah. Heavyweight is like still going and Mystery Show has closed up shop essentially. So uh, my second unpaid endorsement is the movie Cactus Flower, which I can't find Ooh. anyone who has seen, but maybe you two have seen um, Goldie Hawn, Ingrid Bergman, and Walter Matthau. And it has kickstarted a major Walter, Ma- Walter Matthau crush in me. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> and is I, this a I, recent movie? Uh, no, it's from the 60s. Okay. And it's, um, you. I would never think that Walter Matthau would be sexy, sexy in any way. And then I saw a cactus flower and there's something about it. It's great. I'll stop there. I'm excited to watch. Cool. I'm sold. Well, so Emily, how can we find out more about you and... I mean, obviously, seedandspark.com and the blog, but what's anything else? Are you, you're on Twitter, obviously. Uh, yeah, I'm Do you at, tweet to non-celebrities? I, <laughs> I am at Emily Best on Twitter and very accessible for all questions about uh, crowdfunding and data there. I use Twitter at the intersection of business and activism. And obviously, because we have an election coming up, I'm talking a lot about voting and getting people to register to vote and caring about your civic engagement. But um, I also sneak in a few things. Um, I'm going to be in Atlanta on October 20th. We're teaching a big half-day conference. It's free um, at the beautiful Plaza Theater in Atlanta to a crowd of about 500 with Erica Alexander and a bunch of really rad Atlanta creators that's supported by the Metro Atlanta Chamber and Invest Atlanta and MailChimp and a bunch of other cool organizations. Um, MailChimp? MailChimp. Oh, I have that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And is uh, when you say a crowd of about 500, does that mean people can get in? Um, So far, they can still get in. Okay. Um, We are not on wait list yet. We're about uh, three quarters sold. So, um, yeah. Okay. By the time you hear this podcast, it's full. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Um, Yeah. But we are uh, in person around the country uh, pretty much every week. So you can find one of us um, probably in a city near you. Um, and that's on our events page, just forward slash events. Awesome. Well, uh, if you want to email us your feedback about Emily and uh, everything we've talked about, if you have Terrifying. any other questions or thoughts <laughs> or naysaying, we'd love to hear it. Uh, you can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can check us out on all social media or at justshootitpod. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm at smiteypileg. Liz? I'm at Twitter and I talk about pregnancy at Liz Manischel. Oh, Liz, are, Liz and I are actually just going to tweet at each other about pregnancy from now on. So okay. something to look forward to. Yeah. This episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. Our producer is Madeline Rosewatt. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And the music you're listening to is from the artist Jazar and from the Free Music Archive. And write us an iTunes review. And we will see you next time. Bye.